go. Good morning, everyone. Um, I'm Sue Chansky. You probably all know me. Uh, it gives me absolutely great pleasure to introduce our grand round speaker for this morning. Dr. Tosin Ojibelli was born and raised in New York City and joined us from there. This was her first foray outside of New York. She did her undergraduate work at the Sophie Davis School of Biomechanical, sorry, Biomedical Education at uh, City College of New York. And then she got her MD degree at SUNY Downstate. And then she did her master's in public health in community health science, also at SUNY Downstate. She had a global health emphasis and has had a career where she's really emphasized self-esteem and resilience among young women, and that has translated really well into her research work that she's done here as an academic fellow. So for those of you who are not familiar with, with an academic fellowship, academic fellowship is an opportunity to get some additional training kind of under the wing of people, and she's here on what's called a T32 uh, training grant uh, only for research. So as you all know, she's an, an awesome attending in clinic, and she's been absolutely wonderful um, with her, with having her in our clinic has been fantastic. Uh, but she's done some work on shame, stigma, body dissatisfaction using our own data that we get and collect in our clinic. So um, David, thank you for coming as well. Her awesome husband is taking some time out from his surgical residency. Uh, thanks for coming. And Noah did not get to join us, but that's probably fine because he probably wouldn't be that too into it. Uh, but without further ado, Dr. Ojibelli, thank you. <laughs> Thank you so much for the introduction, Dr. Tansky. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Okay, awesome. Um, so my talk is entitled The Price of Shame, Weight Stigma, Body Dissatisfaction, and Mental Health in Adolescents with Obesity. So I'm going to discuss body image and its relationship to obesity and mental health within the context of weight stigma. I have no disclosures to report, but should mention that I speak from the perspective of a normative weight black female pediatrician who was raised in urban America by immigrant parents. I say that because I believe that our perspectives do influence our patient care, especially when it comes to those who may be different from us. This belief, as well as the responsibility we have to acknowledge and evaluate our attitudes and biases largely frame our discussion today. So my objectives. Um, I'll acknowledge that obesity continues to be prevalent in our society. I'll discuss the pervasiveness of weight stigma in our society, as well as in medicine and its health effects. I'll review my research findings related to one potential effect of weight stigma, body dissatisfaction, and the patients we serve at CHAD, and its relationship to obesity and poor mental health. I'll highlight the current AAP recommendations around addressing weight stigma, specifically within healthcare. So after decades of increases in childhood obesity, most dramatically between 1980 and 2000, the national childhood obesity rate has now held relatively stable without a statistically significant increase in recent years, according to the CDC. Still, childhood obesity rates remain historically high, and its prevalence in youth 2 to 19 at 18.5% in 2016 is significantly high in comparison to other chronic conditions. So in response to high national rates of obesity, the issue has been labeled an epidemic. 
and received significant attention from everyone from former first ladies to public health associations to the media. Much of this attention, as well as our current interventions, call for changes in lifestyle behaviors affecting physical health, namely altering dietary and physical activity habits. Despite these efforts, significant change on a large scale in decreasing the prevalence of obesity in all demographics just hasn't happened. In large part, we have. Oops. Oh. Hello. No, that's not on. It's working. Hey, Mike, does that sound any better? Yeah, it's working. I can hear her all along. It was just the podium mic was echoing. Can be higher? No, Um, so, in large part, we have, but must continue to acknowledge that obesity is a bit more complex than just energy in and energy out, and is truly multifactorial in nature. So, within research and its gold standard randomized control trials, there is a lack of clear knowledge about the psychological pathways that contribute to obesity and result from obesity, and even less in terms of an evidence base on how to approach these issues. So compared with normative weight adolescents, obese adolescents have a higher prevalence of school and mental health problems, including poor academic performance, low self-esteem, and a greater number of reported suicide attempts. Several studies have shown that teens with obesity have a higher prevalence of mental health problems such as depression and anxiety. A reasonable conclusion is that obesity in and of itself leads to poor mental health. But in reality, few studies have found that obesity predicted depression and anxiety over time. So when we consider the relationship of obesity to poor mental health, we often think of an oversimplified individualistic framework like this. I eat because I'm depressed, and I'm depressed because I eat. So this doesn't capture the complexity of the issue and doesn't take into account the real-life experience of being a person with obesity. It's truly more practical to actually examine the specific experiences by which obesity might lead to depression so that specific interventions can be targeted. So as opposed to this simple direct cycle from obesity to poor mental health, the causal pathway exploring the link between obesity and poor mental health should probably resemble this. A complex, bi-directional, interconnected pathway containing mediators. What's a mediator? Um, so mediators are factors within the pathway from obesity to disordered mental health that help to connect a cause and an effect. 
So a few studies have actually looked at mediators in this pathway and included factors like peer victimization, low self-esteem, body image, and stigma. I'll use the rest of the presentation to focus a great deal on specific mediators, including experiences of weight stigma and its consequence, body dissatisfaction. So we've actually seen increases in weight stigma in recent years. And we know that this can certainly take a toll on the physical and mental health of all subsets of our society. So what is weight stigma? It's defined as negative beliefs and experiences projected upon an individual that can include teasing and discrimination based on that person's weight. We've seen weight stigma produce inequities observed in the personal and professional relationships of persons with obesity, within their workplaces, on airplanes, etc. And only one state in the United States has anti-weight discrimination laws, Michigan, as well as a few cities like San Francisco, which also has such laws. So increases in obesity prevalence have actually appeared to intensify weight stigma as opposed to decreasing it. Too often, we view obesity as a personal failing and relinquish the responsibility of addressing the various underlying risk factors of obesity, one of which includes weight stigma. Weight stigma is common in the United States and was actually referred to in a JAMA editorial as seemingly the last socially acceptable form of social stigma. When discrimination is socially acceptable, those afflicted are at a huge disadvantage and often suffer from health disparities. This should sound familiar, because distinct parallels can be drawn between the treatment of African Americans and members of the LGBTQIA community to the treatment of individuals with obesity today. Weight bias doesn't always have to be overt and explicit. Those who exhibit implicit bias may still unintentionally communicate judgment, and that has consequences. So within the past 30 years, there's been intense pressure on young people, especially women and girls, to accept the cultural norm of thinness as the key to success, health, happiness, and media and technology has made that focus stronger than ever. And there's a body of work that suggests that weight attitudes are culturally informed, developing in response to dominant sociocultural responses that celebrate certain body types over others. Children can sense the societal weight stigma and internalize it. Weight bias internalization occurs when people apply negative weight stereotypes to themselves, like lazy, stupid, unattractive, and then devalue themselves because of weight. So weight stigma has been shown to present itself as early as toddlerhood and is present throughout the lifespan. In a 2019 study of 84 girls, 3 to 10 years of age, participants were asked to assign positive or negative traits to these Barbie dolls seen here, which vary in size and shape. They were described as original, petite, tall, and curvy. I should note that if original Barbie were life-size in the United States, she would be 5'9 in a size 2. 
curvy Barbie would be 5'6 in a size 6. Meanwhile, the average American woman is 5'4 in a size 16. So many young girls in this study demonstrated negative attitudes towards the curvy Barbie doll. She was most commonly selected as not pretty, has no friends, and was most commonly identified as the doll that participants wouldn't want to play with, citing her larger size as the reason. In children, weight bias often takes the form of bullying, victimization, and teasing. <coughs> children with obesity are twice as likely to be bullied than their normative weight counterparts. Stigma among children doesn't only affect the child with obesity, but the child with the bias as well. Children who endorse greater negative attitudes towards people at higher weights experience high levels of depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, disordered eating, and body dissatisfaction. So weight stigma and its contribution to body dissatisfaction isn't limited to young girls and dolls. It's also been observed in healthcare settings. So studies completed with doctors, nurses, psychologists, demonstrated that healthcare professionals share many of the biases the general public holds against individuals with obesity. A 2006 survey depicted here of about 2,400 US women with obesity found that 69% reported feeling stigmatized by their doctors, and 52% endorsed recurrent stigma by their physicians. Doctors came in second in this study as the most common source of weight stigma after family members. Self-reported surveys of doctors and nurses endorsed the labeling of patients with obesity as lazy, weak-willed, and non-compliant. Even our learners have these attitudes. The Medical Student Changes study of over 4,000 students across the country demonstrated a majority of medical students demonstrating explicit and implicit weight bias. A 2006 study of 500 women with obesity showed that 68% had delayed seeking care because of their weight and perceived weight as a barrier to receiving appropriate care, indicating small gowns, narrow exam tables, and inappropriately sized medical equipment all as barriers to receiving appropriate care. If patients are shamed and embarrassed in a clinical setting, they're often reluctant to schedule return visits, leading to incomplete follow-up care, missed screenings, and delays in treatment for new health issues. So some actually believe that perpetuating weight stigma will propel an individual to lose weight. However, weight stigma can cause persons with obesity significant stress and health effects that ultimately contribute to weight gain. Stigmatizing obesity has widespread negative repercussions. So people who experience weight stigma are more likely to avoid physical activity due to fear and shame. They're more likely to increase their food intake and actually gain weight. 
Adolescents who are overweight may adopt disordered eating behaviors, including vomiting and laxative use, while attempting to lose weight. At a more basic science level, weight stigma can also trigger physiologic changes linked to poor metabolic health by triggering HPA-mediated obesogenic processes. Several studies also show that patients with obesity have less face time with their physicians, receive fewer preventive health services and exams, and receive less health education. Physicians are less likely to offer statements of empathy, concern, or reassurance to patients with obesity and compromising rapport. The stigma has also been associated with misdiagnoses, as healthcare providers get seemingly distracted by a patient's weight, as opposed to focusing on symptomatology in the whole picture. In a 2006 study of over 300 autopsy reports, obese patients were more likely than normal weight counterparts to have significant undiagnosed medical conditions, one of which actually included lung cancer. So finally, patients subjected to weight stigma show increased vulnerability to substance abuse, low self-esteem, depression, anxiety, and poor body image. So body image is complex. It's a multi-dimensional construct that includes personality and physical attributes and cultural socialization. One facet of negative body image is body dissatisfaction. It's defined as the negative perceptions and feelings a person has about their body. It's so pervasive in our society that it's been coined normative discontent. Approximately 80% of US women don't like how they look. Over 50% of all Americans aren't happy with their current weight. 70% of normal weighted women want to be thinner. 53% of 13-year-old American girls are unhappy with their bodies. By the time they reach 17, this number grows to 78%. Adolescence in particular is an important period for body image and self-concept development. And young adults may be even more susceptible to internalizing weight stigma. Strong influences on body image at this stage in life include the media, which targets adolescents, and peers, who help shape their beliefs about the ideal body image. The most consistent risk factor for body dissatisfaction in children is being at a higher BMI. And to date, only a few studies have investigated the effect of body dissatisfaction on the mental health of children with obesity. So I had the opportunity to learn more about the adolescents here at CHAD and began a research project on obesity and mental health. So today I'll present a subset of that research, investing, investigating relationships between obesity, body dissatisfaction, and mental health in terms of depression and anxiety in our adolescent patients here at CHAD. So the project received IRB approval in 2019 and also received a small grant from DH.
<laughs> so we analyzed retrospective electronic health record cross-sectional data of 11,051 individuals, 12 to 19, seen between November 2014 and June 2019, inclusive of clinical sites at Lebanon, Bedford, Manchester, and Concord. Data was obtained from the DART screen developed by Artis Olson, a comprehensive tablet-based screener which asks survey questions within nine adolescent health domains, which includes school, safety, psychosocial measures. The mental health screeners incorporated within the DART screen include the PHQ-A, which is the validated PHQ-9 specifically for adolescents, and the GAD-7, again, a validated questionnaire for assessing anxiety. So a score greater than or equal to five, the cutoff for mild depression indicated a positive screen on the PHQ-A. We decided to use a lower cutoff um, than 10, which is the most commonly cited value linked with major depressive disorder in adolescents. We did this in order to capture patients with mild depressive symptoms based on studies done in rural primary care centers, indicating that a PHQ-9 cutoff score of greater than or equal to five had a sensitivity for any depression of around 80%. Similar decision-making was also involved in choosing a cutoff for a positive screen on the GAD-7, again, supported by studies indicating sensitivity within the 80s for detecting any anxiety. A separate analysis was actually done, examining the same relationships with a cutoff of 10 and revealed the same results. Participants were asked about their body dissatisfaction using a dichotomous variable. Are you satisfied with the size, shape of your body with a yes-no response? BMI was taken directly from the EMR and categorized into normal weight, overweight, and obese based on CDC criterion with those underweight excluded. Multivariable models were created using logistic regression analysis with odds ratios at 95% confidence intervals computed. We controlled for covariates, including race, ethnicity, sex, bullying, year in which the survey was completed, age, level of rurality in clinic location, anxiety, depression, as well as body dissatisfaction and BMI, depending on which outcome was being assessed at the time. So in terms of the characteristics of our participants, the mean age of our participants was 16. They're about 50% male, about 90% white, with an overall prevalence of obesity at 18.4%. When we look at CHAD adolescents in terms of mental health, 16.7% screen positively for depression, and 11.6% screen positively for anxiety. One in four of our adolescents surveyed stated that they were dissatisfied with their bodies. So the following hypotheses of expected study findings from analysis were formulated based on prior research that examined relationships between obesity, body image, and mental health in urban populations, as well as anecdotal evidence. 
for my interactions with CHAD patients as a general pediatrician. So first, we hypothesized that girls have more body dissatisfaction than boys. Second, that adolescents with obesity have more body dissatisfaction than normative weight counterparts. Third, that adolescents with obesity have higher odds of depression and anxiety than normative weight patients. Fourth, that body dissatisfaction is a predictor of depression and anxiety and plays a significant role in the relationship between obesity and poor mental health. We anticipate that the higher odds of depression and anxiety in adolescents with obesity within hypothesis three would be dependent, at least to some extent, upon them being dissatisfied with their bodies. To be even clearer, for a teen with obesity, their weight alone wouldn't increase their risk of having anxiety or depression. Their risk would be dependent on them being dissatisfied with their bodies. So first, are our girls more body dissatisfied than our guys? Well, no. So <laughs> this graph shows the prevalence of adolescents who report being dissatisfied with their bodies by biological sex. Males have a higher prevalence of body dissatisfaction than females, and this was supported by our adjusted analysis using logistic regression to examine odds ratio after controlling for BMI, bullying, race, ethnicity, age, depression, year, we saw that adolescent males were 1.6 times more likely to be body dissatisfied than females. So this is certainly contradictory to our hypothesis that females would be more body dissatisfied than males and differed from published studies indicating that women have poor body image than males across the lifespan although this is much less explored in rural communities. So we double-checked this multiple times <laughs> and continue to find statistical significance. So why are our adolescent boys different? Why do they have worse body image than our girls? I kind of throw this out to the audience, and if you have really good ideas, please contact me. Um, I have a few speculations and feel that this may not actually be so odd. So body dissatisfaction among males is actually on the rise. And men's body dissatisfaction often focuses on muscularity and also involves both ends of the weight continuum. In addition, we tend to have a culture within our communities up here of physical fitness, sports participation, and the celebration of physical achievements. The lifestyle of New Hampshire and Chad is advertised as such. So if an adolescent can't achieve within the arena of athletics due to limitations their bodies impose, does that make them dissatisfied? And does that culture of athletics have more of an effect on our boys than our girls? I don't know. But this is a finding that we hope to investigate in more detail with our future directions, as well as investigating the influence of height. We also must acknowledge that most measures of body dissatisfaction don't adequately assess the typical concerns of men, making it difficult to draw, sorry, 
making it difficult to draw concrete conclusions regarding gender differences and body dissatisfaction. Our society is changing, and more research is needed on boys and men and body image. Okay, so second. Do our adolescents with obesity have worse body image than their normative weight counterparts? Yes. So this graph shows prevalence of body dissatisfaction by BMI. In adjusted analysis controlling for covariates, our adolescents with obesity were 6.73 times more likely to be body dissatisfied than normative weight adolescents. I do want it to be noted that normal weight discontent also exists in our population with 15% of those in the normal BMI category reporting dissatisfaction. I also want to point out that there are adolescents with obesity who report body satisfaction. 42% of our adolescents with obesity reported that they were actually happy with their bodies. So third, do our adolescents with obesity have higher odds of depression and anxiety than normative weight adolescents? Yes. So this graph shows prevalence of depression by BMIs. Adolescents with obesity had the highest prevalence of depression amongst the BMI categories. In adjusted analysis, controlling for our covariates, our adolescents with obesity were 1.92 times more likely to have depression than our normative weight adolescents. When we look at anxiety, <clears throat> adolescents with obesity had the highest prevalence of anxiety amongst the BMI categories. Again, this was supported by our analysis with adolescents with obesity having 1.8 times greater odds of anxiety than normative weight adolescents. So now let's explore body dissatisfaction as a predictor of depression and anxiety. So first, does body dissatisfaction in and of itself have a relationship to depression and anxiety? So this graph is showing us the prevalence of depression by body, anxiety, by body dissatisfaction. So adolescents with body dissatisfaction had a higher prevalence of depression than those that were body satisfied. And our analysis revealed that those adolescents with body dissatisfaction were 3.27 times more likely to be depressed than those that were satisfied with their bodies. When we look at anxiety, our adolescents with body dissatisfaction were 1.74 times more likely to be anxious than those that were body satisfied. <coughs> so research indicates that the relationship between obesity and poor mental health, including depression and anxiety, is not clear cut. We've discussed the literature highlighting the negative effects of weight stigma, including producing body dissatisfaction, and wanted to investigate the role of body dissatisfaction in causing depression and anxiety in adolescents with obesity in our population. So finally, 
let's determine if after controlling for body dissatisfaction, whether the relationship between obesity and poor mental health still stands. So we hypothesized that body dissatisfaction played a role between obesity and the development of depression, anxiety, a mediator. A mediating variable, again, explains the relationship between a predictor, in this case, obesity, and an outcome, in this slide, depression. So this is our mediation analysis. And it shows the findings from our model in which we use logistic regression to obtain odds ratios and controlled for the aforementioned covariates. As mentioned, when looking at just the relationship of obesity to depression, we found a statistically significant association. We also had to examine the direct effect of obesity on body dissatisfaction, which also was significant. As well as the direct effect of body dissatisfaction on depression, again, which was also significant. So now, in the final step, we entered body dissatisfaction into the equation between obesity and depression, controlling for it. The significant relationship, as you can see, between obesity and depression now becomes insignificant. It's shown here in the middle with a confidence interval that includes 1 and a p-value greater than 0.01. So this indicates that body dissatisfaction is a mediator and suggests that it must be present in order for there to be a relationship between obesity and depression in our population. At the same time, when we controlled for obesity, the relationship between body dissatisfaction and depression remained significant, indicating that body dissatisfaction serves as a strong predictor of depression in our population. We found similar results when we looked at the relationship between obesity and anxiety in our population of adolescents. Body dissatisfaction also served as a mediator. So as you can see here, when we put body dissatisfaction in, the relationship between obesity and anxiety also became insignificant. When we controlled for obesity, looking at the relationship between body dissatisfaction and anxiety, that relationship remained significant. So to reorient us, our study findings include adolescent males in our population have more body dissatisfactions than the females. Adolescents with obesity have more self-reported body dissatisfaction. Adolescents with body dissatisfaction are more likely to be anxious and depressed. And finally, the relationship between obesity and depression anxiety is dependent on the presence of body dissatisfaction.
So like any study, our study does have limitations. We use cross-sectional data, so we're unable to definitively determine the directions of causation. All data relied on self-reported survey responses, and oftentimes more sensitive issues are difficult to assess with the survey that's meant for a general population. The DART screen was designed as a comprehensive survey to identify areas of concern among adolescents to guide physician-patient conversations. The screener for body dissatisfaction within the DART screen is not a validated questionnaire in this population for the assessment of body image and was also a dichotomous variable with only a yes-no as a possible response, not allowing for variance. BMI. BMI is an imperfect measurement. BMI gets used because it's easy to calculate. More accurate methods to measure body composition exist, but they aren't considered practical for large studies with thousands of people and are just not as widely used in healthcare. The results lack generalizability outside of our population and that it was specific to our patients at CHAD. On the other hand, with such a large sample size, the results do accurately characterize the intended population. So in terms of future directions, we hope to explore factors contributing to body image among adolescent males at CHAD. We also hope to learn more about the presence of weight stigma in our community at DH and explore interventions to optimize an environment of weight acceptance and inclusivity at our institution. Our study indicated that body dissatisfaction lends to poor mental health, but it's also important to consider the other side of the psychology and explore factors that lend to body satisfaction among adolescents in general and specifically among those with obesity. Exploring resilience building tools may help adolescents faced with the adverse experiences of weight stigma. Finally, in patients who screen positively for body dissatisfaction on the DART screen, we might consider a more specific validated tool to better assess nuances in body image and predictors of poor mental health. So in 2016, the AAP released a policy statement addressing the quality of life of children with obesity. As researchers and healthcare professionals continue to seek effective strategies and resources to prevent and treat obesity, providers must avoid weight bias and stigmatizing behaviors, consequences of which can include poor body image and disordered mental health. The AAP provides recommendations within advocacy and clinical practice to combat weight stigma. <laughs> so given that weight-based bullying is often absent in school policies, healthcare professionals can work with schools to ensure anti-bullying policies, including protections for students who are bullied about their weight. So our legislature in New Hampshire in 2010 passed an updated and comprehensive anti-bullying law, which actually included protections for persons with obesity. It's also important 
that healthcare professionals advocate for a responsible and respectful portrayal of individuals with obesity in the media. So in addition to speaking out against stigmatizing depictions, providers can draw adolescents' attention to body-positive media influences, including the Dove Campaign for Self-Esteem, and as well as common sense media. Our adolescents are using social media anyway. So why not also draw their attention to social media influences who promote body acceptance? It's important for professional entities to continue to advocate for training to address weight stigma in medical schools, as well as in residency curricula, and through continuing medical education for practicing providers. It's also really important to empower our patients and our families to address weight stigma within their families as well as their communities. Parents should be asked to consider potential weight stigma at home, of which friends and family members can be sources. It's important for healthcare professionals to also demonstrate and model professional behavior especially with our trainees, that's supportive and non-biased towards children and families with obesity. So regarding language and word choice, words can heal and they can harm. It's important for professionals to use appropriate, sensitive, and non-stigmatizing language when we communicate about weight with youth and their families. So recent studies have shown that neutral words like simply weight, are preferred by adolescents with obesity. Whereas terms like obese, fat, or weight problem induces feelings of sadness, embarrassment, and shame. Further, using people-first language is really important to help reduce potential stigma. So it places the individual before the medical condition. So using phrases such as a child with obesity rather than an obese child. It's important that we also create a safe, welcoming, and non-stigmatizing clinic space for our youth with obesity. This requires creating a practice setting that accommodates patients of diverse body sizes. Finally, addressing weight stigma in clinical practice also necessitates that healthcare professionals assess patients for emotional comorbidities and negative experiences associated with obesity, including stigma, bullying, poor body image, poor school performance, depression, and anxiety. So promoting self-acceptance and fostering the recognition of body diversity can improve social, emotional, physical, and psychological health. There's also evidence that body acceptance can be successfully incorporated into weight loss programs. Care providers should be working towards encouraging body acceptance as a health promotion tool. Thank you. Great. Uh, and very, I like how you turned all back on us to be reflective about our own behavior at the end there. So, question. These are our kids. I have a question. Yeah. Um, I'm 
I have a question about the directionality of depression and mm -hmm. body dissatisfaction. And I see that you know you can posit that mediating link because of course the obesity is linked for body dissatisfaction. But I'm wondering how much depression distorts your own body image and then body dissatisfaction. If that's a two-way street, so are you able to explore that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so certainly, you know, as I mentioned, all of those relationships are bi-directional. So absolutely, they're really cyclical. Um, and it's hard to determine causation, whether sort of the cart becomes before the horse. Um, so while we controlled for um, everything we could sort of possibly control for within the dart screen, there are certainly other things that are still within that pathway. So um, body dissatisfaction is one of the mediators between obesity and poor mental health, but absolutely there are countless other ones. Is there any evidence that treating depression improves body image without changes in weight? Yes. Um, so I found some of that within the adult literature, certainly not as much within the pediatric literature, but absolutely. Um, treating your depression can improve your body image. And I have one more question. <laughs> these are nice, these are good generalities, but I feel like um, we're responsible to discuss healthy weight, mm. just like we're responsible to discuss smoking cessation. And I've often been met with parental guilt and negative feelings when I discuss smoking cessation, and they might feel stigmatized. And I, I'm wondering about very specific tools to work with promoting a better body weight for health mm -hmm. while still promoting positive body image. Yeah. So I think um, the AAP talks a lot about motivational interviewing um, as part of their recommendation for providers to train themselves. And um, UConn's Rudd Center actually um, on their website has really good information about how to have these discussions with families. Um, and sort of what they want to hear. A lot of the studies indicate that families just don't feel heard. Our families with obesity don't feel heard. Um, they feel like providers often come um, from a standpoint of you need to eat healthier and you need to exercise without necessarily asking the patient first, well, what are you doing? And also considering, um, as I pointed out, the multifactorial nature of obesity. So what is the built environment of our patient? Are they safe in terms of exercise? Do they have access to playgrounds? Um, what is their level of food insecurity? Food insecurity is a predictor of obesity. Um, what are your genetics like? So really considering the whole picture for our patients is actually um, much more effective in providing that empathy that they need and um, preventing that frustration that a lot of patients feel like providers aren't reinventing the wheel. I understand I need to eat healthy and also lose weight, but do you understand my everyday experience and what are you saying to either address or acknowledge that? Joseph, that was a fantastic talk and we're really gonna miss you next year. <laughs> so, um, I'm wondering though, as you move away from our relatively homogeneous rural population and move back to an urban center, you did some body image work back in New York and you're gonna be moving back to an urban center at all. Do you have a hypothesis about how this research would translate into a more urban 
and both socio-culturally um, uh, diverse population. Yeah, um, absolutely. So my hope is certainly to continue to explore this and hopefully have a matched population within an urban center and, and compare these results. Um, certainly, I think that when we consider a more urban population, we are really talking about um, those experiences within the built environment. And um, from my experience in New York, we talked a lot about that in terms of safety. So walking to school, and this was something that we mentioned a lot to patients as a resident um, in terms of increasing their activity. Um, and we would sort of get the pushback that we didn't understand that the walk to school could potentially be a threat to their life. Um, so I think that, you know, when we talk about rural and urban, we do need to consider um, the importance of your setting in how this can affect your ability to do the recommendations that providers are giving to you. Um, and certainly make your recommendations place specific and really consider that while you may not have the challenges of your patients, you have to ask about what those challenges are and you have to explore them and to try and in some ways live in their shoes to be able to help them the best and give them recommendations and build that rapport and build that empathy in order for them to even hear what you're saying. Second question, sorry, I'm taking a page from Shalene and just asking question after question. Um, do you find that there are cultural messages within different ethnicities that may be different, and I'm, I'm trying to say this without being leading, um, some underserved communities and underrepresented minorities already have, have experienced a lot of bias within the healthcare system. And so not only are there societal messages and cultural messages about your weight, but then you come in to see me and I tell you that you're overweight and they have already experienced implicit bias within our system. So I'm wondering kind of how that interaction can work and work. Absolutely. We certainly have to consider the historical context um, of the issues that some parts of our population have with the medical system. And certainly within that context, considering that um, research shows that African Americans have less difficulty, although that gap is sort of decreasing, um, in terms of body image. So there tends to be sort of um, a more widespread acceptance of a larger uh, physique as still acceptable within that population. And some of the discussions around body image are certainly different based on where you come from. Um, so considering that fact that if you are telling um, a patient of a certain demographic that they need to look or a certain way, um, and not understanding the cultural context of that, not understanding what our immigrant families are eating, not understanding the messages that they're getting from their families that you're actually too thin. Um, so it's really, really important that we just ask the questions. We're not responsible to know everything. We only can sort of speak from our personal experience. But it is our responsibility to learn and to be open to the education that our patients give us. That was a great talk. Thank you. Uh, as you go forward with this research, have you thought about trying to make it a uh, multi-center study so that you can capture these different 
settings in a more detailed way, even multi-country? Yes, absolutely. Um, so something that I would love to do um, is to reach back out to um, my collaborators where I went to medical school or to residency um, and try and match populations and really sort of see those differences. Um, certainly, I think our adolescents in um, East Flatbush, Brooklyn, probably differ from our adolescents in Hanover. Um, but I might be surprised. <laughs> so I think that's really important um, for me to discover whether all of my suspicions about the differences in populations are actually no. Is there an organization yeah. that, that, that deals with these subjects that might be a place for you to go to um, yeah. seek other centers who would be interested in Absolutely. Um, so Rebecca Puel is sort of leading um, the research on weight stigma, and she's based out of Yukon. Um, so she would be sort of the, the mecca, the ideal person um, to sort of take this forward. Yeah, that's a great talk, Tosin, and that's some wonderful research and really good use of card screen. I have a quick clarifying question. Yeah. Those data, were they from all the Chad sites of Manchester, right. Concord, and the Upper Valley, so it's not just Upper Valley. Yes. Sports crazy. Um, so I, I have a, if I could do another question. Yeah. I'm, I'm really intrigued by the, um, and I'm not surprised by the data around mm. boys. Um, I, I see kids all the time who um, are sometimes willing to talk, but sometimes not willing to talk really sort of struggling with their self-image and their yeah. connection to others. Um, here and in, when I practiced in Lawrence and in Port Angeles, so it's been something I've been seeing for a while, but I haven't seen data on that mm -hmm. before. And, and I'm not sure about why. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if um, the boys perhaps are more vulnerable in some ways to isolating pressures and mm -hmm. maybe not have the... Um, same way of connecting, perhaps, um, or if it is, there's another stigmatizing element that's that's working on boys in a way that's different. Um, I would I just observe your second to last slide yeah. was of teenagers saying <laughs> a positive body image. Seven teenagers, all girls. <laughs> so no no yeah. boys participating in that. So I wonder if our messaging is part of it too. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. Thank well, you. Steve. One more question. Just building on that. Um, in terms of hypothesis generating about why boys might have uh, more problems than we realize, um, would a focus group methodology be appropriate to, to do that hypothesis generating? And if you haven't done that, you have enough time now to Yes, absolutely. Um, so I really hope that I can sort of um, build a qualitative piece out of this. Um, and really kind of sit down with our boys and kind of ask about why these things are happening and, and what they're feeling. Um, but certainly, you know, I'm not, I'm not gone. <laughs> I'm not gone yet. Um, so, yeah, there, there's still work to be done. Um, and certainly, you know, I'm hoping that um, even after I'm gone, this will continue to be investigated. So uh, I want one quick plug. There is an app for that. There's an app that's called Change Talk that's from the American Academy of Theatrics. It's free, and it's directed around 
um, addressing overweight and obesity in a pediatric population. So it's great. So thank you so much, Joseph. Thank <laughs> you.